If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So it's the end of 2023. It's the eve of 2024. So what better episode could there be than to invite Ben Stanton back on to talk about what from his 2023 predictions have been realised and what the forecast is in store for 2024? That's right. We said we'd get Ben back and we have delivered. If you remember, Deloitte produces an annual TMT report, which stands for Technology, Media and Telecommunications. So it's great to have Ben back, who is one of the insight managers at Deloitte. So, Ben, welcome back. How has 2023 been for you? Well, I can't believe it's been a whole year, to be honest, since the last time we did this. It's flown by. We've been completely sideswiped by this theme of generative AI. I think everyone in the industry has been completely appended by it. So my team has been taking research to as many audiences as we can about generative AI and starting to educate people, but also learn from people. So we've done loads of sessions with executives and C-suites, and, and we count those as our more boring audiences. Um, but we've also done lots of sessions with a more diverse range of people. So like specifically in the last couple of months, it's been HR teams have been asking us about this, our government departments as well. Uh, we did a big evening session over drinks for executive assistants. So people that feel threatened by these tools, we got their opinions too. And actually this week we did a session for 18 and 19 year old aspiring lawyers. So actually it was the latter groups that were asking the clever questions. And actually what we found is the executives, the ones on the big salaries, asking some of the sillier questions. I guess that doesn't surprise us. And and as you say, you know, that AI has dominated the media landscape. And uh, we were saying on our Christmas episode, we on the podcast have done 20 episodes focused on AI this year. So yeah, that certainly chimes with what we're seeing. So Ben, I know we're going to come on to generative AI as one of the main predictions um, for this year, but let's look back at 2023 first of all. So you came on, you gave us a lot of predictions. What were the hits? What were the misses? Ah, good question. So we we present predictions to our clients uh, all the way through the year, and throughout 2023, it starts to convert from a prediction to like a post mortem. So we're in the post mortem phase. Uh, we had one on virtual reality, where we said virtual reality was going to generate about seven billion dollars of revenue. It's probably not been quite as strong as we thought. Um, some of the industry analyst predictions uh, on the number of headsets sold were revised down. So kind of our revenue number based on that came down a bit as well. Um, and for what we've seen is kind of for consumers, actually those that really like VR probably already have a headset. Um, and in enterprises, one of the biggest challenges they have 
adopting virtual reality headsets is a lack of trust that these products will be supported in the same way that a PC or a smartphone is. So they don't trust that the brands selling this stuff are going to continue to update it and give it security patches for the long term. So these things are difficult to unpick. Um, That was definitely, I think, softer than we thought. In terms of hits, uh, we had some stuff on... Leo Broadband Satellites. So we said there'd be a million people subscribed to broadband services from satellite. That's definitely happened. Um, I think we've still got some questions about the economics of that long term outside of the kind of sweet spots in rural America. But definitely that did happen. And also the other thing that we predicted, which did come to pass, was massive demand for semiconductors made out of gallium nitride and silicon carbide. So kind of the kind of things you see a lot in uh, battery electric vehicles and also some consumer charges as well but demand for evs really did drive that so there are now some export controls around those materials but i think just goes to prove how strategically important gallium in particular is so hits and misses I'm really pleased with a couple of those hits that you've just mentioned. So at our quick episode a few weeks ago, we talked to TTP about satellite and technology at altitude. So that one really resonates. And also we have a company called Cambridge GAN Devices here in Cambridge, and we've featured them an awful lot on the news of late as well for what, what they're doing. So and, and EVs as well, I think, you know, we've it's good because a lot of your hits we've we've covered quite heavily already on the podcast. And with the uh, low Earth orbit satellite sector, how much of that is dominated by Starlink at the moment in terms of like percentage of the the market share? I can't give you an exact percentage, but it's certainly the bigger player in the space, shall we say. We get lots of questions from emerging markets about this stuff. Like I said, we are not clear whether the economics work in some parts of the world. It really works. We have a concentration of wealth in very rural areas, and that tends to be a very American thing. There are lots of rural sparse areas across Europe that don't have concentrations of wealth at the levels you'd need to buy the receiver and to subsidise a much more expensive connection. So it kind of remains to be seen whether the economics on that can shift. But yeah, as you say, Starlink, one of the bigger players. I mean, they've got an interesting proposition, though, because I mean, yeah, you, it's a fair point that the equipment isn't cheap but actually the monthly fee is competitive compared to the kind of incumbent telecoms providers and they don't lock you in to long-term contracts you know you can pay month to month which gives you some flexibility which i think is quite interesting so i mean i I think that's the the look back on last year Let's, let's turn the page to 2024 so ben why don't you walk us through the main categories for the predictions for this coming year Sure. This is always an ordeal because we always seem to find a way to write more predictions. So this year we have the largest and most diverse group of authors we've ever had. But also the downside of that is we have 19 separate chapters. So we have them categorised into four buckets. And those buckets are generative AI, surprise, surprise, uh, sustainability, media, entertainment and sport, and telecom and technology. So they're the four buckets. So inside of generative AI's bucket, we have four. Uh, The first is about enterprise software, which is also building a generative AI upsell. So we think that the top 50 software companies in the world are going to launch a gen AI version of their tool, and that's going to drive $10 billion of run rate. Uh, The second is about generative AI chips. So the special chips you need, GPUs, to train and conduct generative AI services. Uh, We think there's going to be $50 billion in sales of those kind of chips in 2024. 
The third is about private data models. So if you're lucky as a company, you might have a really high value private proprietary data sets. So we think companies are going to explore using them to build their own large language models. Um, and actually, the total enterprise spend on Gen AI will be close to $21 billion. And then the fourth is all about regulation. So we have seen the final wording of what the EU AI Act should look like. And our prediction is that paves the way for other regulators. So that's the Gen AI bucket. Um, the second bucket is sustainability. So we have five in this bucket, which I think proves how important climate and sustainability is becoming. So the first is on raw materials. It's about the fact that some regions may run out of gallium and possibly germanium by the end of 2024. The second is on semiconductor sustainability. So we think that the resource intensity required to produce semiconductors is going to go down. So per $1 of revenue you generate from a semiconductor, you need fewer watt hours to produce that amount of output. So they're becoming more efficient to make. The third in that bucket is about telco sustainability. So we've been working on this for years. So we think there are four big ways in which telcos can reduce their CO2 emissions, including sunsetting of legacy infrastructure and moving their fleets to electric vehicles, as we just spoke about. The fourth in that bucket is about specific software that you use to track and report on ESG metrics and in particular carbon tracking. So we think that's going to be a $1 billion industry this year. Um, and then the fifth is ag tech, so agricultural technology. So we think that's an $18 billion industry this year as well. So if you're still with me, that's bucket two. Bucket three is media, entertainment and sports. And in this, we have five again. And the first one in media, entertainment and sports is about women's elite sports. So this was one of our biggest hits of the year. You may, may have seen this in various news outlets. So we think the women's elite sports industry is going to create and generate $1 billion in revenues. It's a milestone year for professional women's sports. The second one in this bucket is about video streaming services. So we see video streaming services adding more tiers to their offerings. So they're giving you more options of the kind of package you want in terms of pricing, resolution, or whether you want ads and that kind of stuff. So I think the average number of tiers, the price tiers you can buy, is going to go from four to eight in 2024. The third in that bucket is about games and uh, movie studios coming together. So this is a continuation of one of our predictions from last year. So we think that by 2025, the share of theatrical box office revenue from video game IP, so like a movie based on games, is going to double. So continued growth in that area and continued crossover. Uh, the fourth is about the audio entertainment industry, so music and podcasts and radio. We foresee strength there, and that's a really deep study that goes into you know, how many people have music streaming services and how many people have kind of listen to radio every month. Um, and then the last one in that bucket is about user generated content in games so that's a real hot spot as well so we think the games platforms are going to pay out over a billion dollars it's 1.5 billion dollars to users creating content so the game will give a user a platform to create something they can charge for so that is media entertainment and sports the last bucket that we have for predictions is telecom and tech. So in here, the first one is on smartphone authentication. So using the smartphone to verify who you are so you can enter a building or buy something. 
we see trillions of processes happening already, and we think it'll move to tens of trillions of authentication processes in coming years. The second in that bucket is about direct-to-device satellite services. So we've started to see those roll out already, and we think 200 million phones are going to ship next year that have direct-to-device capabilities in them for emergency support and things like that. The third one in that bucket is one of our more controversial predictions, which is about the bit rates you require for online applications. So we think that 90% of all the online applications that we do at home and at work will not require higher bit rates, higher internet speeds next year. Actually, we think some of those bit rate recommendations could go down as compression and re-encoding gets better. So two more. Um, we have one on cloud sovereignty. So we see lots of governments around the world, uh, they're scrutinizing where data is held. So we have two proxies for that, which is that government cloud is going to be a $41 billion industry. Distributed cloud is going to be a $7 billion industry. And then the last one is about funding. So it's called life after debt. And it's all about venture debt funding, which has seen a big hit in 2023, we see it growing again in 2024, but nowhere near the levels that it was two or three years ago. So um, it was $30 billion plus in the US uh, for four years straight. 2023, it's dropped to 12 billion, and we see it going back to about 14 to $16 billion. So early stage companies may need to find more creative ways of, of funding. That is all of predictions in a brief nutshell. Okay, superb job, because that's an awful lot of content. And for listeners, we obviously will put the links to the report so they can go and delve into them. But let's us delve into them a little bit now. So we'll start with generative AI. And one of the things you said was that one of the main drivers will be adoption within enterprise apps. Can you give us some examples of what you've seen? You talked about lawyers earlier on. Is that the kind of market that you're talking about? Yeah, quite possibly. But actually, it's I think it's much broader than that. So the, the truth is that most companies in the UK do not have the talent or access to things like GPUs in order to produce generative AI tools for themselves. So the gateway for most companies to interact with Gen AI is they're already probably buying a tool that may create a generative AI capability or possibly an upsell. So that's what we're seeing. We interviewed the top 50 enterprise software companies in the world, every single one of them told us, yeah, we're going to build a generative AI capability on top of our tool. You think all enterprise software, think productivity suites, so all the office apps you currently use, think kind of software that sits in a particular vertical like CRM software or kind of a document management software, or even kind of niche verticals like chip design as well. So all of those areas, we're seeing companies looking to build a generative AI version of what they already have. Top 50 companies in the world are doing this. That's going to drive $10 billion in run rates. However, our prediction actually is soft compared to some of the others that you've seen out there. There are challenges to this. There's a compute cost, a big compute cost with generative AI. One of the things that software companies are wrestling with is how much can we charge for this? And like, how should we charge for it? So do we charge a flat monthly fee per user, even though some power users might end up costing us more money than that and try and find where the balance is? Or do we try and charge on a kind of volume of prompt spaces to kind of the more a company uses the Gen AI tool, the more it costs them? So they've not really worked that out. In the interim, what we're seeing over the next few months is lots of software companies just offering this capability for free. 
in early access programs and they're giving it to their clients and saying you work out how this is useful and then we'll work out later whether you want to pay for it so ben staying on the topic of ai you you, you use the phrase i think walking the tightrope in terms of regulation what are you hearing around people's thoughts of this like huge amount of innovation in the ai space and like everything moving forward at pace in in the backdrop of the ethical conversation around ai and governments around the world's ability to effectively regulate ai it's a moving picture one of the big challenges with generative ai at the moment today is that i can say anecdotally most of the companies that i speak with don't have a corporate policy on this stuff so their employees are in a bit of a gray area as to what they're allowed to do with generative ai and how they should use it in a work context on top of that, when we survey people in the UK, a huge number of people are ignorant to the fact that these tools can be biased, uh, that these tools can you know, hallucinate and make mistakes. So what we measure at the moment in the UK is it's about 4 million people using these tools at work and a big chunk of them not aware of the bias and hallucination challenges they have. Now, that's really problematic. And I actually don't blame the employee. I think the employee should get more help from the employer. But this is where a lot of the regulatory pressure comes from because regulators want to ensure that there is kind of adequate safeguards in place in terms of mitigating bias. So what the EU is focused on is things like bias, but also control in the process. So kind of making sure that foundation models are registered properly, making sure government or some sort of authority has uh, access for kind of testing uh, before launch, a bit of stuff on transparency as well. So making sure that those companies training a foundation model are kind of able to convey what data sources they have when they've trained the model on. So lots of things baked in, but it's still very early. The EU AI Act, while the wording is finalised, doesn't come into force for two years. A lot can change in two years. A lot has changed in the last 12 months in this space. So I would be hesitant to say we are absolutely sure what the regulatory structure looks like, for sure. But the wording is now baked in. The question is how lawyers are going to interpret it. That's the next stage. Okay, so on the Gen AI conversation, you, you just also mentioned then about compute cost. And, you know, I think it's fair to say whatever happens, the whole AI market is going to be a huge energy guzzler moving forward. So I think that's kind of a nice segue into the second trend, if you like, on sustainability. And I know when we had our chat before this episode, I was telling you about a company we'd worked with where we were trying to get people to understand where they were up to on their scope three emissions. And the reality is that actually a lot of them are still grappling with level one emissions. So I, I think on your predictions, one of the things here that's that's jumping out at me is the ESG reporting software sales expected to soar. And I guess that's to help companies really understand how they're going to meet their net zero targets. Yes. So, I mean... I would say for me, and you have to, this is an anecdote, I've seen less interest in climate and sustainability in the last 12 months than I saw in the prior 12 months. And generative AI is a part of that. Um, you have companies now that see generative AI as an existential threat and opportunity to them. And they are absolutely focused on whether their business will survive the next two, three years if they don't harness these tools properly, more than they're focused on will there be a climate emergency in the next 20 years. And that's what happens in 
the private sector, um, which is okay to some extent, but this is the reason why you need really strong regulation on this stuff. So we are seeing companies have to adopt ESG reporting tools and things like that because the regulation is strong and is coming into place. So if you look specifically in the EU, you have the CSRD, which is going to force 50,000 companies to report on these metrics in 2025. But the data they gather for that reporting is 2024. So you're seeing a lot of investment now in specific tools to help companies track and measure things like emissions and other metrics of ESG. So that's been important for a while. It's could have been important for talent. It's been important for M&A and investment conversations. But it's now a regulatory requirement, which I think is a real step in the right direction. So we're seeing a lot of growth in that space. It's a bit of a crowded market, actually, but we think it's a billion dollar market next year, that market for specific ESG reporting software. So Ben, switching gears, um, we're obviously in a region that's very strong on agritech. So that appears in sustainability as well. Do you want to give us um, some insights in terms of where you see the agritech market going? Yeah, so we're seeing growth. And it's not I mean, in, the, in the UK, yes, and in lots of parts of the world, there are technologies which are really helping to solve challenges in agriculture. And agriculture is one of those, I mean, it links to sustainability very well, because it is 20% of global emissions for CO2 and CO2 equivalent. And technology has to be at the heart of the solution to that. So the reasons why ag tech is becoming more important is because there are lots of things exacerbating. You have wars in parts of the world that supply certain crops, which are very important. You have the number of people dealing with food insecurity around the world increasing. So it's now 345 million people measured to be dealing with food insecurity, which is two and a half times more than we had in pre-pandemic levels. And then you have all kinds of other things, water and energy shortages, uh, the cost of things like fertilizer going up. So the need to become more efficient financially, as well as for the planet, is really, really important. Um, In the prediction, we point to two areas, really. We point to the planning phase of growing crops. So you think about technologies like infrared mapping, uh, drone-mounted cameras, some AI-enabled autonomous machinery. Uh, Using all of those, farmers can make much better real-time crop placement decisions. So we're seeing that happening. But also on the harvesting side, one of the big challenges the UK has, actually the US has this as well. Not every market has this, but in the UK, you do see labour shortages around busy seasons when you want to pick a lot of fruit and vegetables. So there's growth in spaces like agribots that help with kind of robotic grasping uh, for automating some of that process and uh, mitigating the labor shortage. So for agribots specifically, that we think that's a $1 billion um, industry within a couple of years in the total sphere of ag tech, which is now emerging as an $18 billion market. So really quite substantial growth in lots of areas there. Yeah, I mean, I think the agritech space is really interesting, that whole whole farm to fork. You know, there's so many things. And actually, it's one of the best examples of where all kinds of technology can completely disrupt legacy systems. So so I, I think that's definitely a prediction to, to watch out for. And I, I would say also probably long overdue. You know, I think it should have a lot more focus than it, it's had to date. So just moving on now, this one isn't particularly tech, but I was interested when you were running through the media, entertainment and sports one, that the top prediction and the one that you've had the most traction with from a media, as as in a news um, of the TMT predictions perspective, is the women's elite sports. So, so was that a surprise to you? 
actually, it wasn't a surprise for us. We were able to pitch these predictions internally as a proxy for what would happen externally. And that's the one that got all the eyeballs. So um, the women's elite sports prediction. So just to remind you, we think women's elite sports generates over a billion dollars next year. $1.3 billion, which actually makes it over a billion pounds, which is which is nice for the UK media as well. So they have a nice number to coalesce around. That's 300% higher than the last time we measured that market in 2021. But we're presenting it to all kinds of companies. And the reason is, is because it's a, we think it's quite a good, lucrative investment opportunity for some firms. So you may find firms in the tech and telecom space that are looking at women's elite sports thinking, how oh, these are brilliant brands, athletes, profiles to ally with. Um, and there are, but the reason we wrote this prediction is there are nuances about this market you need to know if you're going to become an investor in the space. So if you look at women's elite sports, the biggest revenue contributor is commercial revenue. So that's things like sponsorships. Um, and then you have broadcast revenue. And then you have match day revenue, so kind of ticketing at, at events and gates. It's the reverse of the men's sports industry. So in men's sports, it is very much broadcast, which is the revenue driver. So you might have seen a Premier League rights auction uh, very recently, multi-billion pound rights auction. In women's elite sports, it's very much sponsorships, which is the main driver. Um, we're seeing kind of really quite promising returns, monetary returns and brand returns for companies that are willing to invest in that space. So it's one of the biggest predictions, actually. It's about 4,000 words. But if you have time for it, I really recommend it. There's loads of stuff in there about how to develop the women's game, how to develop pipelines for better professionalization, um, better talent, raising the profile of female athletes. And crucially, like for young females in sports today, we really want to start to carve out career pathways for them. Um, so there are some, there's actually a brilliant write-up of one of the Spanish footballers at the moment in the news you can read about um, Aitana Bonmati. She, when she started playing football, was in a team or a club of 400 boys and one girl. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, kind of lack of inclusivity she had to overcome. Um, girls today are in a much better state than that, but we can certainly create career pathways for women because this is now an industry which can support um, many, many more careers than it used to be able to. So I, I've been chomping at the bit to move the conversation onto gaming since we started, but uh, so you'll have to keep me to time here, Faye. I mean, it feels like the industry's got a back on track after a very rough 2022 coming out of the back of the pandemic. We've still seen some consolidation with a lot of independent studios being uh, acquired. I think we spoke about the Activision Blizzard deal with Microsoft in last year's conversation, but it only actually was finalised in October this year. That was obviously the headline grabber. That was $68 billion, I believe, you know, which brings the likes of Call of Duty into the Microsoft universe. What are you seeing in gaming? There's lots to talk about here. Yeah, loads of stuff. So with two predictions that really touch on gaming. So the first one was that one, if you remember, about the IP crossover, movies to games, games to movies. So there's just no shortage of examples of this now. I think I said to you last year, oh, I reckon the Super Mario Brothers movie is going to be one of the biggest movies of 2023. And But you don't have to be a, a, a wicked forecaster to, to work that out. So that wasn't really um, anything groundbreaking from me. But you can just see how this kind of IP just resonates in different environments so the prediction that we have on this is the theatrical box office revenue from video game ip being used in movies is is going to double the movie studios are looking for new stories particularly new franchises they're looking for ways to engage young audiences so if you look at 
very young audiences, Gen Z, they spend just as much time gaming as they do watching videos. So, And they like to be able to follow characters and follow stories between spaces. So engaging that group is, is a really, really important and hard thing to do. They want to you know, watch a movie and then go home, step into the screen and become the main character. So we're seeing loads of movements in that space, but also kind of movie IP that transitions the other way and moves into the realm of gaming. So whether it is avatar or whether it is a hogwarts legacy type experience so there's a lot of transition there one of our predictions last year was also about virtual production so one of the benefits of this or the efficiencies of this is you see some of the production tools used in creating virtual content in games is also the same as now used in movies as well so it's transition of assets that can happen more easily as well so lots of important opportunities for partnerships there because movie studios are looking for great franchises and games have it yeah that's really good news for you know cambridge with obviously a very strong game development cluster here with the likes of frontier jagex ninja theory just to name a few that's really good so thanks for that ben we're now going to move on to the last category and you opened this one talking about smartphone authentication and the ability for an app to verify exactly who you are and really increase that level of authentication do you want to just talk us through a little bit more on that sure yeah we we get questions all the time about like what does the future of the smartphone look like and to be fair smartphones have not iterated that much in the last few years and a lot of the the greatest innovations have been with the the semiconductor or the cameras the things that are kind of under the hood they don't look that different so this is really a mashup of two themes which is like what's the future of the smartphone and what's the next evolution in cybersecurity and physical security. So we see smartphones already used all the time for the process of authentication. So we're saying it already happens trillions of times per year. A lot of that you'll be familiar with, things like two-factor authentication, where you get a, a, a text to verify who you are when you're trying to get onto a website, things like that. The challenge with that is the network costs of things like two-factor authentication because of the volume of texts that get sent out are huge. So it's about $26 billion in terms of network revenues are generated from two-factor authentication. So the challenge is, in the future, we'll need to do a lot more authentication on our smartphones. And the challenge for the industry is, how do you bring that cost down? And the way in which you do that is, is by using the smartphone and using other techniques. But we really look at the smartphone as a Goldilocks device, and it's already cannibalized MP3 players and alarm clocks and GPS navigation. This prediction really is about cannibalization of things in your wallet, and it won't happen overnight. But we see that process is underway, and we're, we're towards getting towards tens of trillions of things being authenticated, and it'll be much more common in coming years to, uh, to tap in and out of your office using a smartphone as opposed to a lanyard, which is quite outdated and, and quite easy to spoof increasingly common for access to your car increasingly common for access to your house and things like that as well so on that theme of the you know convergence and the future of the smartphone you you talk about the integration of satellite connectivity into phones walk us through that and and uh, do you see that in the short term as more of a business application or do you see that in the consumer market as well Yes, we have a prediction on kind of direct to device communication. So if you if you have a newer phone, you might have already seen the notification on top. And if you've had to use it, I'm I'm very sorry. Hopefully you haven't had to, but you can send on the newer phones that exist a set of preset um, emergency messages 
um, even if you don't have cellular coverage. So if you're at the top of a mountain or you know, somewhere you'd never find me, you can still get in contact and send emergency messages. So we're seeing a growing ecosystem of companies kind of coalescing to support that, to provide that kind of uninterrupted mobile coverage for specific small bitrate applications anywhere on earth. So the prediction is we think 200 million phones are going to ship in 2024 that have that direct-to-device satellite capability. And then if you add the amount of money it takes to kind of bolster that with satellite construction and launches, it's probably about $3 billion of investment needed to establish that market. But still in quite early stages, if I'm honest, there's still economic hurdles, uh, tech hurdles, regulatory hurdles, but the benefits of this are quite obvious. So it's improving consumer safety. You also, with these kind of services, have the potential for lots of IoT applications and could link to some of the ag tech stuff I mentioned earlier. But more than anything, it's going to, it's almost like a kind of improving the resilience overall for telecoms infrastructure. So we do see growing interest in these kind of applications for the commercial players. I'm not yet sure that consumers have shown massive appetite for this, but we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then I think the final one that we want to just drill into, I mean, you know, especially when you think about who we talk to on a weekly basis, you know, we're talking to uh, startup founders and we're talking to investors. So let's look at your predictions around venture debt funding. Sounds like you're positive about it growing next year. Yeah, it's it's positive. Well, it's positive compared to twenty twenty three, should we say? But our point is the market's changed. I think if you look at some of the big bank failures, it's clear that the market is not the same as it was. But if you look, think about kind of funding at a foundational level, you have fifty thousand VC backed companies in the US alone. Many of those are unprofitable, burning cash, and over the last four or five years, venture debt's been a really attractive way to finance your expansion without diluting equity. So like I said before, venture debt was $30 billion plus in the US for four years straight. A lot of these trends are kind of, they extrapolate globally. That dropped down to $12 billion in 2023. So that's a, a market departure. And it's it's partly caused by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, but not exclusively. It's kind of the general economic landscape where you have rising interest rates, M&A, IPO slowdown, Various other economic factors all matters too. But for next year, as some of this starts to settle, we think that venture debt will creep back up to you know, 14 to $16 billion in the US. But going forward, like the permanent picture is that there are things that have happened that will, will not go back to the way they were. So venture debt deals have changed. They're going to become smaller. They're carrying higher rates. They're going to be more difficult to obtain. So for your early stage tech companies, if you normally prefer to borrow money, you might have to make some different moves. And it could be kind of reconsidering sacrificing a bit more equity or looking at grants and buyouts and things of that nature. And then the other thing that early stage tech companies have to think about, or at least keep a careful eye on, is cash flow. So thinking about medium and long term, not being able to count on lower rates of interest for venture debt going forward. So it's, it's a different landscape, but the companies that can ride this out are, we think they'll be really competitively positioned as things recover. So Ben, my last question for you is going to put you on the spot. So there are four categories in this year's predictions, 19 predictions. I would like to know which one you are personally going to back as your prediction of choice for 2024. I think... 
So there's one I referenced at the start on telecoms sustainability, where I said, you know, we'll see sunsetting of legacy infrastructure and other things that will make telecoms more sustainable. But what that speaks to actually is cost reduction. And I think my big theme of 2024 is going to be cost reduction. So in telecoms, there'll be OPEX and looking at um, legacy infrastructure. In tech, it'll be cloud and things like FinOps. So can you kind of re-architect the way your computer is structured so you save money? And in, in the media industry, it'll be things like kind of content spend. So are we going to see extortionate budgets for new TV shows? That's A lot of that is kind of under question now. So the thing that unites T, M and T, I think in the coming year will be cost reduction in terms of efficiency gains. And actually, that will be the way to improve your bottom line. So I think that's what we'll see. And there'll be other themes that bubble up that we haven't covered. Things like fixed wireless access. I think we're going to have lots of conversations about fixed wireless access. 6G, we'll probably start to have early conversations about how necessary 6G is and what the timescale for 6G looks like. But yeah, I go back to that telecom sustainability prediction because that's the one that really talks to cost reduction. So if I'm hedging my bets, I'm hedging them on that. Well, we got through it, Ben. Congratulations. That's a, there's a lot to go through there in terms of content. And uh, we certainly know from looking at our data that your episode last year was a very popular one and, and actually has generated downloads through the entire year. So uh, we thank you uh, for taking the time and coming on again and uh, being assessed on your accuracy of last year, but then also looking ahead to 2024. Well, absolute pleasure. Predictions aren't always correct. Today, this is what we think is going to happen. And if we come back next year, we'll do a post-mortem again and we'll see what was right and what was wrong. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Um, So that's the end of today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for being with us in 2023. And we wish you all the best for 2024. Yeah, Happy New Year. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Are you a data-driven business looking for resilient infrastructure, connectivity, and the power to compute sustainably? KO Data's scalable state-of-the-art facilities support the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech, and AI startups in Cambridge. To find out how we can help host your compute, get in touch at kodata.com/contact.